everybody, I'm Linda, I'm an alcoholic. Ooh. My, uh, my fear of people has not left me in this particular moment, but um, I'll settle in here in a minute. I am incredibly grateful to be here, incredibly grateful to have been asked to do this. Thank you, Josh, for asking me. Thank you to the committee for putting this on. This is my first Rule 62 conference. Um, and I'm really, really happy to be here. And um, thank you to Lynn for being such a, you are such a wonderful touch point this whole process. Thank you for that. Um, and I'm just grateful to be asked to do anything for Alcoholics Anonymous because of what this program has given me. Um, and I was taught by very good sponsorship um, that when AA asks me to do something, the answer is yes if at all possible. Um, so to be able to freely give what was given to me is a gift and a blessing, and I'm grateful for it. Um, I am sober by the grace of God, and I, I, God, God is the, the name that I use. Um, and uh, like, like Erica said last night, I'm not really sure God cares what I call him uh, or her or it. Um, but I, God is the name that I use, and uh, it encompasses everything. And I say that I'm sober by the grace of God because every single thing I have needed um, from February 11, 2012, until today, so far, in order to stay sober, has shown up in my life. It has just materialized. It has been presented to me and laid at my feet, and I've just had to you know, have the willingness to pick it up and use it. Um, and, and every, you know, every moment I have been carried through, um, I'm quite aware that I did not get myself sober because I do not have that power. Um, and I am not keeping myself sober because I don't have that power either. What I have is an ability to, um, allow God to live inside my heart and keep a, a conscious contact by doing the, you know, just the very simple steps of this program. Not easy, but very simple steps. Um, and, and that's what I do. I stay close enough to God so that he can keep me sober. And that's my plan. Um, and, and I've heard my whole sobriety, I've heard that, uh, you know, there will come a time when your only defense is a spiritual one. And it stands to reason that you won't know when that is. And, um, and I felt that very profoundly here in my life recently. And, and my, my hope had always been, because like, I, you know, I hate to admit this in front of you guys, but I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a rule follower, you know. I, it's embarrassing, I, I know. Um, but I want to do good, you know. I want to be a good girl. I want to I do what I'm supposed to do. So I've been hearing people say, stay close to God. You have to stay close to God. You have to stay close to God loud and clear my whole sobriety and it's been my hope that well when the next life hits me I'll be so close to God that that'll be where I turn first and um and that's that's been something that's come true for me here lately and I'm and I'm so grateful for that I can't sometimes I look back I can't even imagine how in the world I ever survived without a relationship with a power greater than myself um but uh, I, I'm a third-generation alcoholic. Um, my dad and my grandfather before me, um, it's sprinkled throughout the family. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm also a third-generation sober alcoholic. And I 
I have no explanation for why that happened in my family, but I, I do want to tell you how that started. Um, it started because my, I'm, I'm, this is, I'm really excited for the Al-Anon lead. Um, my grandmother, um, after years of living with my grandfather, she went to Al-Anon, and she formed a, a relationship with a power greater than herself. And that power gave her the strength to come to, to her husband and say, um, Here are, here's your plane ticket to treatment, and you're going or I'm out. And she said it. And, and, and he knew that she meant it. And, um, and the story I got from my uncle who was there at the time is, uh, you know, my grandfather is all, you know, grumbly and like, I'm, I'm not going. And then, uh, and then that sort of slowly worked into, well, I'm going, but I'll never feel the same about you. You know, all, all dramatic and like, like we get, you know. And, uh, and it turns out that was true. Because he came back and he didn't ever feel the same about her because he came back, by all accounts, a changed man, freed, freed. And he enjoyed four years of life before cancer uh, took him. And my father has his big book, and it is a big book that looks like somebody read it for four years, and it's marked up with his stuff, and it's pretty special um, to have in our family. And... Um, you know, he grew into, in those four years, grew into a man that was not dominated and controlled by his character defects most of the time, which is, you know, I don't know about you guys, but if I don't have a solution for what's wrong with me, I am dominated and controlled by my character defects. They are the ones running the show. Um, someone told me once that uh, you, if you're an alcoholic, you, you don't get to run your life. You don't get to. We have the illusion that I, you know, I have the illusion I'll be running my life, but it's truly one of two things. Either I'm surrendering it to God so he can run it, or my character defects are taken over. You know, the, the illusion that I'm in charge is just all made up. Um, and that rang true to me. Uh, I don't know about anybody else. but So that's how recovery started in our family. Um, and so if, if recovery needs to start in your family, you know, my experience is that it has to start somewhere, and you can go ahead and let it begin with you. And while we have no guarantees and we cannot do anything for anyone else's, you know, to make them be sober, don't estra- underestimate the power that happens when, when we tap into God and we let God shine through us out into the world around us. It can have an effect, you know, and this is something that I keep in my mind because uh, I have three children, and, um, you know, that. The possibilities that there's a fourth generation seems, you know, it's pretty reasonable that that might happen. Um, so I keep that in mind, and it's one of the reasons why I try to work a strong program, um, because, you know, I can't control anything that's going to happen with them. I don't know what their journey is. It gets to be theirs, but they will know where to go if if they need it. They'll know that they can go to to their family um, and. Uh, that means a lot. So I, uh, I, I grew up in a home with a whole lot of love and this disease present. Um, my parents loved me, and my, I have an older brother um, that I grew up with, and then another one that we only found out existed 10 years ago, another half-brother. Um, but the one that I grew up with and, and I, we were loved by our parents. We were loved deeply. Um, and, and this disease was also very present in our home. My dad quit drinking when I was five. Um, he never embarked upon a plan of action to treat his alcoholism. So 
he had, in this, he and I have talked about this, he wouldn't mind me sharing it. What he had, describes is that he had a spiritual awakening, a spiritual experience strong enough to relieve his mental obsession. So he did not have to continue to keep putting it in him. Um, he didn't know it at the time. He thought he had quit, you know. Um, but looking back on it, that, that's his take on it now. Um, so he was a dry drunk, you know, and it was a... a an unpredictable, I heard Erica say that last night, it was, grew up in an unpredictable environment where you never knew what version of him I was going to get. And sometimes um, rage is a, is a strong trait in our family. Uh, I, I'll also have that. My husband's here this morning. He'll attest to that. Uh, but my dad, my dad, sometimes he was just terrifying how angry he was. And sometimes he was far away, trapped deep inside himself, I couldn't even reach him, you know. And sometimes he was wonderful. Coached my little league team. Made sure I had everything I needed. It's very confusing, you know. And, and I say this only to say I grew up, became an alcoholic, became a parent, and became every single one of those ways with my own children um, and, until, until sobriety. So, and my mom was a codependent. You know, you don't live in, with an alcoholic and not get sick. And... Um, I was confused by my upbringing. It, you know, I didn't know what you're going to get on any given day. And um, I developed this idea that I should be able to know what to do to make things better in my house. I mean, there was, there was physical abuse, although neither of my parents ever hit me. Uh, they knocked my brother around. Um, and I, I don't know why that is. Um, and, and he, in turn, did what... Is awfully predictable is he turned, he found the next smallest weakest person and he knocked me around and um, the last time he hit me I was I was 15 and he was 17 and I, I was like this and he was just wailing on me and um, that's the last time he ever hit me because he, he told me when he made his amends to me through the 12-step program that he is part of that um, he, he had scared himself when he did that um, and so there was, you know, there was, there was tension and um, dysfunction and abuse, and, um, and, and, I, don't, and I, I don't remember a lot of it. Um, there were things that my brother witnessed, and I had to have been there for them, but I don't, I don't remember them. Um, there's just, you know, it's a lot of untreated alcoholism dominated and controlled our family life despite the fact that my parents loved us deeply and despite the fact that they wanted very much to be good parents. Um, and, and so, so I, uh, I had this idea that, if, that I should be able to know what to do to make things better in my home. If I could just figure out what to say, how to act, how to break the tension, what to, you know, that I should know, I should be able to figure it out. Um, and I never could, I never knew, I never got it right. Um, and, and that, so my ego was very present from a very young age, then telling me that I should be able to be strong enough, capable enough, competent enough to fix everything for everyone and fix, manage, and control. And if I could just wrestle the right stuff out of life, everything would be great. And, um, so I carried that on my little girl's shoulders, which is kind of heartbreaking when I look back on it. 
Um, and I, I, ha I have a lifelong internal voice of not being good enough, you know, just not being good enough. Um, and, you know, I had that thing where I felt different from other people. And I had some so just life circumstances that helped me to feel kind of different from other people because of the way that I was raised. I was raised, I was born in 1972 in Detroit, and when I was like three months old, my folks moved out to a, a shack that they built in the woods with you know, pump water, wood-burning stove, no electricity, garden and goats. It was the early 70s. They were that version of hippie. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and, and so that was how I began my life, you know, basically in, in, a, in a sort of like social experiment, chosen poverty was kind of how they looked at it. Um, and I was just this free-range, wild little baby, me and my brother running around naked and filthy and ha probably pretty happy as little toddlers. There wasn't a lot of discipline taught in my house. You know, they, my folks were like, well, they'll, you know, figure it out. They're individuals. They've always treated me as an individual, you know, as a, as a whole person. Um, but then when, uh, my, when I was five years old, my dad got a job uh, down around the Dayton area at a teaching, uh, I'm a, I was raised by a philosophy professor, which is not an easy thing for an, an overthinking person to begin with. <laughs> Uh, but he got a job teaching, and we moved to Cedarville, Ohio, which is a very, very small, very conservative, very straight-laced town um, from what it looked like to me. I didn't know then that there was another side of the tracks where things weren't so much that way, you know. But, but you know, I, my, my house was different from my friends' houses. My parents were different from my friends' parents. You know, I, I was dressed different, I, and, you know, like the hand-me-downs and so like that. I just, so I kind of always felt like, you know, I'm looking around at all my peers. I didn't feel like I felt fit. I didn't feel like fit. Um, and then the year that I turned 12, uh, my dad got a grant teaching at a university in Africa. We moved to Nigeria for a year. And that was equal parts um, just absolutely wonderful experience. I learned a great deal about how people are pretty much the same everywhere you go and a great deal about gratitude, um, having witnessed firsthand how very little a lot of people survive with quite happily. Um, and it was also terrifying uh, for a, 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 you know, a 13 year old girl who is deeply sensitive to begin with. Um, there, it was under military rule. There were angry men with machine guns that, you know, my dad had to navigate, bribing to get places because that's just how it was. Um, we were semi-rural, uh, so we, we saw a lot. There was a, there was a snake that got into my bedroom um, that, that, and you can't call animal control in 1985 <laughs> in Nigeria, you know? My dad had to go in there and kill it, and that's just how it went. And then, you know, he's the next day parading it around the neighborhood, and all the men come out, and everyone's talking about what kind of snake they think it is, because people are the same everywhere, you know. <laughs> um, just there were there were scary, and 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 it was it's you know 13 years old is marrying age in that culture uh, to some degree, and and I got looked at, uh, I got talked about, you know, about you know people. Grown men talked to my dad about marrying me right in front of me, and I, 
Uh, it made my skin crawl. Uh, I hated that attention. I hated that. It made me so uncomfortable as a young woman to have that kind of attention on me and to be to have the sense that I was being looked at as a, as a sort of a thing instead of a a person. So that, I had started having some recurring nightmares over there. Um, I mean, it was as I as I look back, it was a great grand adventure, and it was also traumatic in some ways. Um, especially for a deeply sensitive uh, little girl. And so we come back to small little Cedarville, Ohio, um, and, I, and I'm in seventh grade. Oh, and the year before we left, I had broken my leg in a skiing accident, and then I um, crushed one, one side of the growth plate in my knee, and then I grew a bunch, so my leg grew crooked because it was only growing on one side. So I'm back from Africa. I've never fit in. Uh, I have a crooked leg, and, the, you know... <laughs> I'm in seventh grade. Like, <laughs> I was so deeply uncomfortable in my own skin. And, and I'm doing things like buying shoes that are too small because I feel like my feet are too big. And, and painfully putting my little girl feet into these shoes because in my mind, I'm so uncomfortable with how I am. I wouldn't sit a certain way because it would make my thighs squish out. I, I felt like my arms were too hairy. Everything was bad. You know, I just, I so... Listen, when I got a hold of alcohol, I was deeply in need of a spiritual solution, man. I was not okay at all. My dad said not too long ago, he said, I was looking back at pictures of you in those early teen years, and I could see the disease in you. I could see it in your eyes. Um, and uh, so that first, you know, and, and my mom, uh, she very good mom. She gave me all the good talks that you're supposed to give your children and stuff. And, you know, she's like, it runs in your family. You got to be careful. Drugs are dangerous. You know, alcohol is dangerous. And by the way, I was happy to do whatever you showed up with at any time during my whole drinking career. Um, but none of that ever grabbed hold of me the way alcohol did. I, and the alcohol was always the most important thing. Um, but there was a lot of other stuff. Um, so she gave me the talks about why I needed to be careful, but she was also a hippie. So all I heard out of her wonderful, kind, caring, motherly talks was mind-expanding experiences and altered states of being. And I was there for that. I was like, yes, I need. That's all. And I was ready. And the year I turned 15, I did everything for the first time. That was my big year. The first time I got drunk, uh, I'm at a summer camp, and an adult male counselor bought a bunch of us little teenage girls a bottle of vodka, and this raised absolutely no red flags with me whatsoever. I never questioned it. I never even thought twice. If you were doing it, I was doing it. That illustrates my decision-making ability as a young woman. Um, I was never going to just say no. Um, when <laughs> Remember the Nancy Reagan... Uh, there was a cover of a Newsweek, and I remember she was on the front of it with the Just Say No slogan, and I remember rolling up a big fatty right on her face. I'm like, I got your Just Say No right here, Nancy. <sighs> it just wasn't going to ever be part of my story, I don't think, because the first, that first time I got drunk, I felt... And if, oh, if I could still get this feeling, I, I, probably, I probably never would have stopped. Um, I never would have stopped. We were kidding. Uh, I felt wild 
and powerful and strong, like some kind of warrior goddess woman. And I, you know, I'm 15 years old, and I loved that feeling. I felt wild in the best way. Those were my best feelings of being under the influence and just unstoppable. And that just, that was so much better than feeling scared and weak and vulnerable and alone. And um, so I, you know, I don't think it's ever, 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 ever going to go any other way for me. You know, I think it's an alcoholic before I ever took my first drink. Not that it matters. I know I'm an alcoholic now. That's the important part, I think. Um, but, uh, and they, I had physical consequences. You know, I woke up hungover. I, I blacked out part of the night. I'd thrown up. They'd had to take care of me. And they were like, Linda, do you know what you did last night? And I, um, I, I felt bad about those things. They were there. They just paled in comparison to that sense of ease and comfort, that relief that I got. So my alcoholic thinking just took those consequences and just kind of stuffed them back. Not important because I needed to be able to feel like that as often as possible. But like I said, I'm kind of a rule follower and I want to be a good girl. So I, you know, I maintained. I, I, that was the beginning of my 25-year drinking career. Um, and, and, you know, I held it together. I, I did all of the things that you're supposed to do. I did the school, and then I, um, I think I just had a slow progression, honestly. Um, and I was able to hold on to the illusion that I was in control of my drinking. Um, and part of that is because I never really had consequences. I mean, I had the, the physical, I had the consequences that I in, inflicted on my own soul, you know, the stuff where you know, you know, I knew right from the start on some level and just ignored it and stuffed it down and tried to drink it into submission. And that damages your soul, man. And, and then, you know, as I, as I kept on going and doing stuff and living my life alcoholically, all of that just piled on and just continued to damage and erode at my soul, I believe. Um, but I... Uh, See, I got married at 19 um, because he asked me. <laughs> and if, if he, well, first, first time I went into his apartment, he and his roommate had the stuff that they were selling spread out all over the table with the scales and the stuff. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm there for that. Um, and, and he asked me, and if he asked me, that must mean that he loved me. And if he loved me, that must mean that he will do whatever I want for me to be happy. You know, that was kind of my thinking. Um, and that didn't turn out that way. Although we gave it a, a good role. Um, it was, uh, let's see, I was, I got, our, my first son was born when I was 21. And um, we got divorced when he was six. So we gave it, we gave it a good role, you know, it was, and, and he was an alcoholic. I even went to Al-Anon to fix him because I had no idea I was an alcoholic too at the time. I just didn't know. Like I said, I didn't have those big consequences, you know, and I, and I, this whole time I'm, you know, fairly high functioning. Um, I, uh, I just, I just didn't get caught. I just didn't get caught doing any of the stuff that, that, you know, adds to, people's stories. I, I, uh, at one point, it was morally important to me to not drink and drive. Eventually, that went right out the window, and I'm driving around with my children in the car. Um, and it's, you know, maybe it's 9.30 in the morning, because I, 
I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, and so I'm going to go grocery shopping, but I can't do it sober. I'm not going to go sober. So they're strapped in the back seat in their car seats, and I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go shop drunk. Um, I, I regularly put them, uh, others, myself at risk. I don't know how I didn't ever cause harm that way because I did it a lot. I picked them up from daycare and school that way. Um, I, I didn't get caught embezzling money from the employer that I stole from. Um, I worked for him for 14 years. I stole a great deal of money from him. He had no idea. Uh, a couple years into my sobriety, um, I had to go make an amends to him. And I'm just, I, God orchestrated that whole scenario for me because I was too afraid and too um, unwilling to do it and God showed up in a big way uh, and convinced me you know I had to tell my husband what a thief I was he didn't know no one in the world knew you know my sponsor when it came out in my fifth step and she immediately said you have to go start paying him back and I said that's a great idea And I even made a separate bank account. So I was, going to, I was going to do it anonymously, right? I made a separate bank account. I was going to save up money. A year and a half later, I'd saved no money. I'm not, not good with money. Um, and and the guy, this guy found out I was out of work, and he sent me a letter saying, I'd like to offer you some work while you're out of work. You could help me get caught up. We could help each other. And uh, two days later, I'm, I'm in his office because... because my sponsor and people in this program gave me the strength to do that. I'm in his office telling him what I'd done to him with as much money as I could possibly pay him in that moment and then working off and paying off the rest. Um, so God freed me of that because I, I, wasn't, I wasn't able to get myself free of that at all. So I'm very grateful for that happening. Um, anyway, I, uh, I got remarried when I was 33 to my husband that I was still married to. And he's right, he's here today. And Oh my God, I love him so much. We've been married 18 years. I'm sorry, I don't know why I'm so emotional about that. Um, we're just very, very close at this time in our relationship, and it hasn't always been easy. And um, I remember when I first got sober, he said to me, he's like, and he's a beautiful man with a beautiful faith, and he said, why can't you just be happy? <laughs> And me, completely out of touch with any sort of gratitude, said, why can't you just blah, 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 you know? And I couldn't get there, man. I couldn't get, I couldn't get in touch. I'd lost nothing in my drinking. I didn't lose my children. I didn't lose my marriage. I didn't lose my freedom. I didn't lose a job. I didn't lose anything except for my soul, you know? Um, and I couldn't be grateful. I didn't understand, and boy, the people of Alcoholics Anonymous helped me understand just how grateful I should be, uh, regardless of whatever the circumstances of my life are. Um, And my sponsor taught me that you can use the traditions and apply them to your relationships. Uh, You know, my husband and I, we have one ultimate authority that's more important than either one of us, and uh, that is a it's a huge blessing in my very best uh, relationship advice if anybody wants any relationship advice from an alcoholic. <laughs> and I, I had my second son when I was 35 and my daughter when I was 37. Um, the, so the thing that got me sober 
So I, I just, I'm just carrying on in this, you know, sort of like living hell, thinking I'm doing pretty good, thinking I'm in charge. Um, and then life showed up, and I, a series of trauma um, that sent me over the edge um, to my first surrender, um, which I had no idea I was surrendering, but I absolutely just surrendered to alcohol because life just got too hard. Um, and I'll just real quick, what happened was my um, my oldest son was 15 at that point, and his father was got had gotten very very sick. He had a kidney disease. He was on a transplant list. He was on disability. Sued me for custody right around that time, and wouldn't talk, wouldn't settle. I I, I will never know what his motivations were. I like to think perhaps. He was just trying to demonstrate to our son how much he loved him. Um, that's what I would hope for. But anyway, uh, you know, and I even I even offered money um, to try to settle and work things out. We had always shared our son fairly well up until that point. Um, but this custody thing happened, and it had to be a trial, and I couldn't make it stop. I was powerless. I had to go through this trial, and all of the conflict that that put my 15-year-old and 16, he, he you know, turned 16 over that process, all of that pain that it put him through. He said to me once, Mom, I'm in the position where I have to try to figure out which one of my parents is lying to me. Um, and, and it was so hard, and I was pregnant with my daughter. And 10 days before my due date, we had this trial. And um, so I think like 13 days after that, she was born. And then 16 days after that, my ex-husband um, got a kidney transplant. Uh, I remember he called me the night before, even though things were horrible between us. He called me and said, I'm getting this transplant in the morning, and I could hear the hope in his voice. And he went in for that surgery and never woke up. He suffered a lack of oxygen to the brain for a long enough period of time to cause brain damage. And he laid there um, in that state from June to November of 2009, um, and I had to take our son. You know, I remember him calling me from the hospital that morning, and he said, he, I could hear it in his voice, he said, something's gone horribly wrong, Mom, and I'm holding my newborn daughter, and I can make everything wrong with her right just by holding her close to me, right? And I can't fix anything for my son. And, um, and, and I had to go take him to see his dad in that state. And... Um, and the, the uh, I, I couldn't fix anything. I was so powerless. I was so powerless. And I thought that I should be able to have some power. I thought I should be a good enough mom to be able to fix things. I thought it was my job to fix him and to heal his heart. I thought that's what I was supposed to be doing. And none of that is true. I don't have the power to fix anybody or heal anybody's heart my job and I didn't know this at the time my job is to show up and love people in whatever that looks like in whatever moment I have with them in my relationship with them it's only just to love them I cannot have that you know that burden and responsibility is not mine to bear but at the time I didn't know that I thought I was supposed to and the pain of not being able to fix things for my son because what kind of mother can't make things better and that sent me into just an absolute surrender to alcohol. I turned to it 
in it with a new desperation and, and basically said, I can't, talk, I can't stand the pain that I am in in my life right now. You have got to come in and take control because I can't live like this. I'm dying, you know. And, um, and it did. And um, to, to illustrate where that took me was uh, my, my brand new baby daughter. Um, I didn't have a great connection with her from the get-go. Um, and I, uh, I, I had a, you know, this natural upbringing from these very natural people. And so I wanted to nurse her. I wanted to nurse, I nursed all my children. As, and it was a point of pride for me to be able to do that. So because I am an alcoholic, I researched how long does it take uh, alcohol to metabolize out of your breast milk. And I did that research, and it's very conclusive. And then I proceeded to absolutely ignore that data and the, all of the drinks that I had right up until the point where she would wake up in the middle of the night. I just pretended like those didn't happen, and I took my alcoholic thinking and just shoved those back to the back. You know, and I went in and pumped, you know, alcohol straight into her little baby body. And I remember there would be mornings when I would be, if I would wake up before her, I would be afraid as I was walking into her room of what I might find in her crib. And then she was fine. She was always fine. She was always fine so that I didn't have to, I could say, oh, okay, well, everything worked out. So I'll just put that back, you know, I'll just shove that into the back. And just continuing to damage and erode at my soul. And I, it breaks my heart that I did that to her. She's this amazing, healthy, um, mostly. Although she's having some health issues right now. But she was born healthy and a, a thriving child. Um, so that's where my alcoholic thinking takes me. And I need to know that. And I need to remember that. Because I don't. that's where I will go back to. That is how I will think and how I will put myself above all others, despite all of the love that I have. Doesn't matter, you know, it's not enough. And all the willpower, I'm a very strong willed person. We tend to be, you know, I am not weak willed. It's just that willpower doesn't work with addiction. It just, that's just how it is, it just doesn't. Um, so. After a while of suffering on like that, I just was gifted with the certainty that I was dying. You know, I was participating in my own death. Everything got real sloppy. Uh, I had escalated to a point where, um, you know, I, 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 was, I was scaring myself. Um, and... And I knew, I just, I was given this certainty right around the corner as, as a circumstance. You know, I, I had been drinking at work. Uh, because every day at that point, I would wake up and I would say, either I'm not drinking today or I'm never drinking again, depending on how bad things were. And I would mean it, you know, I would mean it. And I would uh, carry on. And at some point in the day, almost, some, you know, sometimes immediately, sometimes on the way to work, you know, sometimes towards the end of the day, at some point, the mental obsession would take over. It would hit me, and I got to the point, honestly, where I just stopped fighting it because I welcomed the numbing because I couldn't deal with the amount of pain that I was in. And, and my house, you know, the 15-year-old the uh, who had turned 16 during this time, he's so angry, right? He's so angry. 
and um, you know he's he's in pain and he's taking it out and my husband can't tolerate the way that he's treating me and the two of them are like this and it's tension and it's hard and it's awful in my home and then you know and I'm escaping so I had the certainty, though, that I was, so I started, you know, I knew about AA. I'd been to some AA meetings back when I was trying to fix my first husband, and um, my dad had dabbled in it in the 80s, so I knew about AA, and so I said, I'm going to go to an AA meeting, and I did, and I, I bought a big book, and I started started reading that big book, and, um, man, there were words in there that reached out and grabbed me, you know, walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe, and standing in the sunlight of the spirit and stuff like that, man, that reached out and grabbed me. And I, I knew I needed that. I needed that. And yet, I still was not ready to admit <laughs> that I was an alcoholic. So I get the, the, the part in the book that talks about, like, if you're not sure, try some controlled drinking, right? So I set about an experiment. Um, <laughs> And uh, I, I was my, we were all hanging out. I was gonna, my plan was gin, um, which is weird because I had been Derek, had, my husband had banned me from brown liquor at that point, and all my <laughs> friends thought that was a good idea. I was supposed to be on the clear the clear stuff because vodka wasn't going to be as bad. Anyway, it was gin that night, and uh, I was going to sip it from a cup with a straw. That was my plan. <laughs> and that you know that made probably made it halfway through the first cup or. And, and, and just got ripped and behaved horribly and um, woke up the next morning and I knew, I knew with a certainty, with an absolute certainty that I was an alcoholic. And it was the greatest feeling of relief I have ever felt because part of me knew 25 years ago and 25 years of fighting it and pretending like it wasn't real. Uh, and I was so... Relieved, and then I was terrified because I'd been around enough AA to know I was going to have to do stuff. <laughs> and uh, it took me six months to, to do something. God gave me six months of sobriety uh, before I finally was looking around, um, realizing nothing had really gotten better. I wasn't drinking, so sort of, you know, I wouldn't put anything in me. But I was in hell. I was an alcoholic without a solution. I had nothing to treat. I was in untreated alcoholism. So I had the, you know, big deal. Big deal I wasn't drinking. You know, I'm dominated and controlled by the disease at this point. It's the first time in my life I could ever comprehend how anyone might tap out. You know, I didn't come anywhere close to it, but it was, I, I, I could see. Like, oh, I could see maybe. And, um... I, I go up to my sponsor um, and, like, just to ask her, it hurt so bad, you know. It was just physically uncomfortable to ask for help because I thought I was supposed to do everything on my own. You know, I was supposed to be strong enough and capable and competent enough. And I asked her, and she said, sure, and uh, like she does. And uh, we got to work on the steps, and I, I just went through them. I was so numb um, because I was in emotionally protective mode that I learned to go to when I was a little girl. You know, I was just so numb. And they, and they worked anyway. You know, they worked anyway. And um, that was the beginning of me learning there's another direction that I can turn to solve my, to solve what's wrong with me. 
Um, and, and, and I, you know, what I've learned through AA is I, I, I can turn the other direction and I can say to God the exact same thing that I've already known how to say, which is I can't take the pain that I am dealing with. I can't live this way. This is too hard. You know, this is me six months sober. Um, and quite honestly, at every point along my sobriety, I've just continued to say this. I can't live by myself. I can't live left to my own devices. It's too hard. It's too painful. I need you to take over and run my life because I can't do it. And, uh, and God has. You know, so it's my experience. There are two directions that I can turn. There's one or the other. And there's no in-between. And um, I, uh, I'm so grateful that I've learned to do that. And whenever I've done it, God has shown up in my life and he's taken over and he's taken control. And how things are now is that God lives in my heart. Um, and I have a conscious contact with a power greater than myself. Uh, I have a design for living that works and oh my God, do I need one, you know. Um, most of the time, I can be okay in my own skin. And that is a miracle for a person like me. Um, I still struggle. I did a fourth and fifth step this last week with my sponsor. And, um, you know, I still struggle with wanting to be perfect. Because if I think, I think if I, if I can do everything perfectly, then I won't have to suffer consequences. If I, could, if I can just fix and manage what's going on with my daughter's health. Um, she, she's a gymnast, and she's strong, and she's fierce, and she's determined, and she's suffering from something physically um, and emotionally and spiritually, and it's so painful. And um, we're at the point where we're seeing specialists. And if I could just do all of that right, then she'll be okay. And if I can just know for myself, because a few months ago I got diagnosed with breast cancer, so if I can just do everything right, ask all the right questions, do everything right, then I'll be okay. You know, and it, it, it's that my sponsor helped me to see, God, this is why step work is so wonderful. She helped me to understand that that, that need to be perfect it just all comes from fear. And, then, you know, that comes back to when I was a little girl just trying to fix everything because if I could, if I could fix things, that I wouldn't have to be afraid, you know. And um, listen, that's all just crap. <laughs> it's just not, it's not any kind of line of thinking that, that is helpful or constructive. My best line of thinking is I can't take this. This is too much. The fact that I am functioning and doing as well as I am, and I am handling this fairly well, it's because the secret is I am turning it over because it's too big. You know, this is, this, all this stuff happening at one time in my life has helped me to understand I, I can't. It's, it's just too much for me to carry. I got no choice but to give it over. I'm going to lay down and die of pain or I'm going to turn it over to God and ask him to run it. And, you know, like, that's something I've known to a certain degree my whole sobriety. I've, known, I've always known there's relief there. I'd gotten to the point where I don't sit there anymore feeling awful. I call my sponsor. I go to a meeting. I pray. I do something. I do this is a program of action. I've known that all along, but now it's, like, shown up with a, 
um, a, a bigger desperation. And, and it allows me to, instead of sitting there and wallowing in what's going on with me, it's allowed me to be so very grateful, so very grateful that what I have is treatable, that we're getting answers for our daughter, that she talks to me, that we are close that she comes to me, and because of what you guys have given me, I have words of hope and encouragement for her. That my 16-year-old, who often gets my scraps of attention, because for one, he's 16, and he's off in his room for like seven hours a day, um, but, but he, that he came to me this week and said, Mom, get a therapist. <laughs> Because we have him in therapy, and he has come to see the value of that. And uh, just to help him work through his stuff. Now, not that there's anything, you know, he just needs some help getting through his stuff. So, um, and, and oh my God, I wanted to be so defensive when he told me that. You know, well, maybe I would if I didn't have to pay for your, you know, like. And out of my mouth came, I hear you. I hear you, and thank you. And I called the next day, and I set myself up an appointment because it's okay for me to need. I need, I need some outside help, man. I need. I need all the help I can get right now, you know. Um, so, I, I have I have that kind of relationship with my children that are still at home, and that that older son is thirty now. Um, he might. I don't know. He might be one of us. I don't know. You guys, if you could all just stay in the rooms and tell all of your people to stay, get super healthy and super strong. Because my kids might need a sponsor someday. <laughs> and they're, you know, and if, if not my kids, then someone else's, you know. Um, he and I have as close of a relationship as we, we will ever have because, you know, no man is an island except for him. And he doesn't talk to his mommy about his feelings at this point in his life. But he lets me watch his three-year-old baby two days a week. And there's another one coming in September. Nobody has to worry about me driving that kid around or falling down the stairs with her. Um, and I get to be there actively in his life, loving him, loving his children, loving his wife, who she's, oh, God, she's my baby girl, too. I just, I'm so blessed, so blessed. Um, and I just want to share, I, I know I'm about out of time, but I want to share this one more thing that AA, just to illustrate what I know that AA can do, what we can do for each other, because we are a room full of people. We wake up in the morning and ask God to flow through us out into the world around us so that people can see his power. And uh, in June, we went on a trip. We went out to Oklahoma because my daughter, she's a competitive athlete. She had a competition out there. And um, by the way, she is a national champion and gold medal winner. <laughs> Just, uh, yeah. It was so fun. I almost died. I almost lost my mind. Um, but it was two days of competition. And we, we, were, we took our camper. So we're, we're in the camper. In this competition, it's like loud. It's intense. It's hard emotionally. We're in this camper. We're camping together as a family. We're on top of each other. We got tires blowing. We got brake lines blowing. We got all the toilet broke. You know, we got all this stuff, all this stress. And um, I'm out of my routine. I'm, out, I'm, you know, I'm usually, I'm very, I, I, got, I got a routine. You know, I got my practices established. And now, none of it, you know, and I'm out of my mind. And I realized I wasn't okay when I'm looking at the shelf of the grocery store and there was, you know, there are the bottles. And I thought, oh, 
I probably feel pretty good. And it wasn't a serious thought, you know, but it was there. And the next day, I walked into a meeting in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, and I said, I'm not okay, to a room full of you guys. And, and they weren't strangers. They were angels. And I unloaded. You know, I unloaded all these things that were going on. I have cancer. And this man named Chris, he said, you know, in his Oklahoma accent, when things get rough, sometimes I just like to say, all right, God, I can't wait to see what you do with this. I can't wait to see how you work this out. And this woman named Tammy gave me her phone number. And she said, you're going to have to call me and let us know because we're going to be thinking about you. You're going to have to let us know how this all goes because we know you're going to be okay. And this woman named Michelle held my hands in her hands and she prayed over me and my family and she wept with me. And those people saved my life that night. And I know that that's what we can do for each other. I've gotten to be on the, on the you know, the... The other side of that where someone else has been in tears and I have shown up for them that way. It is a beautiful thing that we give each other. It is a gift that we give each other. And um, I'm insanely grateful for all of you and and this program. And um, that's it.